Good morning. Welcome to the First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin. We are a spiritual community dedicated to the free and responsible search for truth and meaning, and we are dedicated to being in right relationship with one another, with ourselves, and with the planet. We come from a long heritage of teaching that there's a spark of the divine in everyone. And so what we do when we are here in the room together is we turn to our neighbors and welcome them here. And what we do when we're watching on the live stream is we put our greetings in the comments. You're welcome to greet one another. Let us say together the words with which we light our chalice. This is the flame we hold in our hearts as we strive for justice for everyone. This is the light we shine upon systems of oppression until they are no more. This is the warmth that we share with one another as our struggle becomes our salvation. The words of poet Nancy Wood. Earth, cure me. Earth, receive my woe. Rock, strengthen me. Rock, receive my weakness. Rain, wash my sadness away. Rain, receive my doubt. Sun, make sweet my song. Sun, receive the anger from my heart. This congregation has written a mission statement for itself. It guides our decisions as we move into the future together. We wrote it on the wall. Uh, Hopefully it will be on a slide that you can read if you are in the live stream. And we like to say it together every Sunday morning. Together, we nourish souls, transform lives, and do justice to build the beloved community. After we say our mission, we have a moment for beloved community where we learn something about our culture, our white supremacy culture, where everything is arranged so that the white people can stay on top if they make, if anyway, so the white people can stay on top. It's complicated. I wanted to tell you about a man named Daryl Davis. He was a black man, an aspiring musician. He played with Chuck Berry, Jerry Lee Lewis, Muddy Waters. But the legacy that he left us was that he made friends with the KKK Grand Wizard. He went out of his way to make friends with this man, Roger Kelly. And he spent years befriending the Grand Wizard of the KKK in his area. They even had meals at one another's homes. And he struggled to understand the hate that Kelly and his friends in the KKK had for people who looked like Daryl Davis. He even went to a Klan rally a couple of times as the guest of Richard. Was it Richard Kelly? Anyway, I have to read back over here. Mr. Kelly, we'll just call him. Roger Kelly, that's his name. So, um, what eventually happened was that Roger Kelly denounced the KKK and handed his hood and his robe to Daryl Davis. 
Daryl Davis in total has seen over 200 Klan members walk away from the KKK. He's a world changer. I want you to know about him. Good morning. I'd like to invite all the children to come up and read a story with me. This is called Anti-Racist Baby by Ibram X. Kendi. Illustrations are by Ashley Lukashevsky. Anti-Racist Baby is bred, not born. Anti-Racist Baby is raised to make society transform. Babies are taught to be racist or anti-racist. There's no neutrality. Take these nine steps to make equality a reality. Open your eyes to all skin colors. Anti-racist baby learns all the colors, not because race is true. If you claim to be colorblind, you deny what's right in front of you. Use your words to talk about race. No one will see racism if we only stay silent. If we don't name racism, it won't stop being so violent. Point at policies as the problem, not people. Isn't that a cute baby? Some people get more while others get less because policies don't always grant equal access. Shout, there's nothing wrong with the people. Would you like to shout that with me just for fun? There's nothing wrong with the people. Even though all races are not treated the same, we are all human, anti-racist baby can proclaim. Let's do that too. We are all human. Celebrate all our differences. Anti-racist baby doesn't see certain groups as better or worse. Anti-racist baby loves a world that's truly diverse. Knock down the stack of cultural blocks. Anti-racist baby appreciates how groups speak, dance, and create as they choose. Anti-racist baby welcomes all groups voicing their unique views. Confess when being racist. Nothing disrupts racism more than when we confess the racist ideas that we sometimes express. Grow to be an anti-racist. Anti-racist baby is always learning, changing, and growing. Anti-racist baby stays curious about all people and isn't all-knowing. Believe we shall overcome racism. I'd like to say that together too, okay? We shall overcome racism. Anti-racist baby is filled with the power to transcend, my friend, and doesn't judge a book by its cover, but reads until the end. The words of Dorothy Day. People say, what is the sense of our small effort? They cannot see that we must lay one brick at a time, take one step at a time. A pebble cast into a pond causes ripples that spread in all directions. Each one of our thoughts, words, and deeds is like that. No one has a right to sit down and feel hopeless. There's too much work to do. In our service, when we enter into an attitude of meditation and prayer together, where we can speak or listen to God as we understand God, or where we can listen to our inner wisdom, 
or just watch our breath as it comes in and out of our bodies. Let us enter together into what Ralph Waldo Emerson called the wise silence. We hold in our hearts today all who are ill or suffering. We hold in our hearts today those who are angry and distraught. We hold in our hearts today those who are in the midst of war and terror. We ask that we might enjoy whatever joy we have in our lives. That we might enjoy whatever privilege we enjoy, we are given. Earned and unearned. And that we might use that privilege for the betterment of the whole planet. Give us clarity, give us compassion, we ask. In all the holy names we pray. May it be so. Today we're talking about our proposed eighth principle. You know, Unitarian Universalism has seven principles instead of a creed. And we agree as a group to affirm, which is say yes to, and to promote, which is tell other people about, 
these principles that we live by. And what happened was that in 2015 or so, one of our leaders named Paula Cole Jones, who was hired by the district around Philadelphia, which is called the Joseph Priestley District, she was hired as their justice minister to help the churches do more to be moving forward with more justice. And she realized that you could follow all the seven principles to the letter and still ignore racism. And that many white Unitarian Universalists were doing exactly that. (laughs) That we were following all these seven principles to the letter. And sure, anti-racism is implied in some of the principles, but um, not overt, not highlighted. And so she felt like we need another principle, an eighth principle. And she talked to uh, one of the ministers of a mixed-race congregation in... Philadelphia called Church of the Restoration. And that minister drew up a draft. His name was Bruce Pollock Johnson. He he drew up a draft, and then they worked with another group of anti-racist activists in the Joseph Priestley District to refine this draft. So here's what we've got for the eighth principle. And we, as congregations, are being asked to look at it and to vote on it um, up or down without wordsmithing it, which is really hard on us. (laughs) I'm saying it because it's true. Unitarian Universalists want to put everything in the best words possible. And we want, and the best words possible mean, and I hate to say this to all of us because they're important to me too, but the best words possible are the way that it reads the most smoothly and wonderfully to rich white people. And so what we're asked to think about is, does it say something that is comprehensible without wordsmithing? Yes, it does. So if it's comprehensible, then let's deal with what it says rather than how it says it. So here's what it says. The eighth principle affirms and promotes, okay, journeying towards spiritual wholeness. That's for all of us. By working to build a diverse, multicultural, beloved community, by our actions that accountably dismantle racism and other oppressions in ourselves and in our institutions. So we're dealing with this as Unitarian Universalists. It's really good news for some some of us. And for others of us, it's like, ah. We've been doing anti-racism for so long and still our congregations mostly identify as white. And what are we doing wrong? And why can't we have more people with more diversity in our, uh, in our congregations but without really changing anything? <laughs> Can we please just have more people with different hues of skin in our pews? But people who have perfect grammar and people who have good teeth and people who can speak English really, really well and people who have the same values that we do and preferably maybe that we're raised on golf courses. We don't. <laughs> I'm exaggerating to make a point. And I don't know if this is how you are. I'm, t- I'm taking what I call the white noise inside me and amplifying it, imagining that it is also 
in many of us. So why my white noise says, why can't we just all be the same? Why can't we all just be treated the same? Why, why do we have to see color? Why does it have to be a big deal? This is a little part of myself, which is why I'm terrified to say this and to preach this sermon. Um, I am not good at anti-racism. I try, but that doesn't matter. I want to be great at it. And I'm just, I think I'm not. I have so much to learn. And I'm a white lady. I'm like a middle-class, 60-something white lady. And that's my identity, one of my identities. And you can't wash that off. I can't wash off my generation. I can't wash off my white culture. I was specifically taught when I was a child in North Carolina how to be white. You're taught in many very subtle and not so subtle ways. And so that you don't, you don't even see what's happening around you. My mother grew up in India. My whole, her whole family were, um, grew up in India. And so there were photographs of Indian people and Indian furniture and Indian food all over. That's what I was raised with. And so in my family, what I was taught was, (laughs) I'm really sorry to say all this because this is so crappy. I was taught that Indian people were the highest (laughs) and then came white people (laughs) and then came everybody else. And that if you wanted to have a good house, you had to have Indian furniture. And if you wanted to have a good yard, this was in the South, you only planted white flowers in your front yard because any other thing was tacky, which means, I know, in my front yard now, I mean, we've got corn growing there. (laughs) There would be a lot of disapproval about that. But only lower class people had non-white flowers in their front yards. I mean, can you, it, it goes to that level. And it, nobody ever said that out loud. But you would be driving around and somebody would say, look at all those loud azaleas in that front yard. They should have planted white ones. And I'm sure y'all were taught other ridiculous things. I'm just, I'm dredging up the most ridiculous things so that I can tell you all how I was raised to be white. I didn't even notice that there were no black kids at my school. My mother taught at the school too. And one day we were driving to school and she pointed at a little building kind of off the road. And she said, that's where the black children go to school. I was in second grade and I had never thought about where the black children went to school. I was like, huh. Okay. And many, 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 many Unitarians were raised this way in one level or another. And many, many families, I mean, every family has its own culture. Am I right? So even when you get married, it's a cross-cultural adventure. Um, Even when you have a dear friend, like how much do you interrupt each other? How, how do raised voices go? What do you talk about at dinner? What do you talk about in the, um, in the living room when everybody's sitting around? Is the TV always on? Is the TV off? Do you go to sleep with the TV on? Do you go to sleep with the windows open? Do you go to sleep with the windows closed? Everything in a fa- is family culture. We don't talk about this. We don't talk about that. When someone's drunk, we just say they're not feeling well. When someone passes out on the sofa, you go, mom's taking a little nap. <laughs> 
every family has its culture, and so every culture has its, you, you know all this, has its practices, its ways of talking, its ways of cooking, its ways of um, eating together, its ways of partying, and its ways of celebration, and its ways of grieving. And most of the time we don't even think that the way our culture does it isn't the standard way. And you kind of look down on people who do things in a different way. Well, they're showing too much emotion at that wedding. We are stuffy British people. Sorry, British people. <laughs> but I've been watching lots of TV where British people are buying houses in the country because it's like TV Prozac. And, um, <laughs> and you see them, and sometimes they'll go into a house, and they'll get a little tear, and they'll go, Oh, emotion. Then they'll get themselves under control again. (laughs) One lady even walked from room to room going, (laughs) Mosh. I'm like, these are my people. I know these people. Mosh. But what Paula Cole Jones noticed was that many, many Unitarian versus congregations assume that the default of white culture is the culture that should be in the churches, and that most of the leadership of UU churches was European American, and most of the styles of worship were European American. And we have a very European American Protestant style of worship. We're trying to uh, we've been trying to break that up a little bit with some rock and roll and some world music and um, music from Latin America. And we're doing a lot better than I think, but I'm prejudiced about our congregation. Um, we're doing a lot better, and other congregations around the country are trying to do better, not just being a classical music appreciation society. <laughs> not that there's anything wrong with classical music. Trying to sing more. Trying to get back to singing again. Feels good, doesn't it? Yeah. We'll get our slides together. We'll get our we'll get all of that together. I'm sorry about all that. We also, as you use, have a very mixed record historically in terms of anti-racism work. We, we hold up our Unitarian Universalists, our Unitarians and Universalists, because we didn't become UU until 1961. So our Unitarians and our Universalists, we hold them up, the ones who were abolitionists, the ones who worked to start schools, um, the ones who worked to abolish slavery. We don't really hold up those who were kind of anti-abolitionists, which many were. We don't really hold up our record of um, all the... Northeastern Unitarian Universalists looking down on all the Southern Unitarian Universalists because that's where racism lived. <laughs> Boston. And, um, <laughs> they're finally waking up like, oh, Harvard was built on enslaved, on the, on the buying and selling of enslaved people. Hmm. Maybe we have a little part in it too. Maybe there is a little racism in Boston. <laughs> That's where our headquarters are, for those of you who don't know. Our headquarters is. Sorry, grammar. 
We lift up people like Thomas Jefferson. We name things after him because he once said that everybody in the United States would be Unitarian by the time he died. And that he thought Unitarianism was wonderful. So we kind of claim him, but he was a slave owner. Having children with Sally Hemings, who we're not sure how much say she had in the matter. I would say none, since he owned her. We have a lot of shameful history. We lift up wonderful Unitarians, but we don't say much about John C. Calhoun, who was also Unitarian, or Millard Fillmore. And I shudder to say this, but some Unitarians were very active in the science of eugenics. Talking about breeding and superior human beings. So, we're noticing that the evidence is that most Unitarian Universalist congregations are mostly filled with white-identified people and that the people of color among us have to draw on reserves of strength in order not to be drained by uh, the white noise that comes out, not just from me, from lots of us. And we need to learn to go beyond where we are now. My generation. We did our best not to see color. We thought that was the most polite thing. And so even even when we would be describing a group of friends and we would want to pick out one of our friends, we wouldn't say, that young black man over there, we would go, see that guy with the red hat and the scarf? Just so we didn't have to say, the one black person in this group because we thought that was more polite as if there was something wrong with seeing people's color and we, we wanted so much to say look when we cut ourselves we all bleed the same look when you go in an x-ray machine all our skeletons look the same look there's not really anything any such thing as race which Ibram Kendi said in his anti-racist baby book there's not really such a thing but there is a difference in how people experience life in the world, and especially in our country in America. It's not especially, but we're, ta- we're here, so we're talking about here. There are so many more obstacles thrown in the path of people of color than there are of white people. And I've said this before, and I can't remember the blogger who made this analogy, but it's wonderful. Some of you will call it out maybe. But he just said, you know, we're all just playing this video game. And the people with who identify as white and male are playing this video game of life at the lowest level of difficulty. You're going to get help. People are going to go, hey, you have a nice voice. You should be a minister. The people who are white and female are playing at the next highest level of difficulty. So when I wanted to be a minister, nobody said to me, you have a nice voice. You should be a minister. I said, I want to be a minister. And they're like, why? (laughs) What makes you think you could do that? Please don't become one of those angry women. People who are gay are playing at a little higher level of difficulty. People who are black playing at a higher level. Brown playing at a higher level. Black, brown, uh, disabled at a higher level. Indigenous at the higher levels. Indigenous and queer, higher levels. You're playing at a higher level of difficulty because 
you get blocked. There are obstacles. You're driving along a country road at night and a police car comes up behind you. How terrified do you have to be? I have the privilege of not being terrified at all. I could have a a whole pickup truck in North Georgia full of white men with beards and red hats and flying Confederate flags, and I wouldn't be scared because they are there to help me. If I broke down and that truck pulled up, I would be happy because they would be there to help me get my tire fixed or whatever. Unless I had a Hillary Clinton sticker on the back of my car. Then they would shoot me the bird and yell. But I don't think they would kill me. They just now made lynching illegal. I hate crime. Just now. So what I'm saying is, what Ibram X. Kendi is asking us now to do is to name people's race. Even though it's not a real thing, it's a real thing sociologically. It's not a real thing biologically. So he says, say a person's race. He says, when you're talking to your children, you say, how many black kids are in your school? How many brown kids are in your school? Oh, your friend Amanda? Is she she black or brown or white? What is she? Is she Asian? What's, What's Amanda like? And just make it normalized. And not just make white the default. Like if I say, see that guy standing over there? Uh, If I don't say his race, it means he's white. You go, see that white guy standing over there? Then you're naming it. As if everybody's race were a part of their identity. Is that making sense? And so we teach our children to normalize saying people's races, even if we were raised not to do that. If, if you're in the hippie generation where everybody should be the same, we shouldn't see color. Now we know from our black thought leaders that you should see color. So you try to adjust. You try to go, okay, I didn't know that. Now I'm learning. Uh, now that I know better, I'll do better. And our black thought leaders might change their minds in another 10 years. That's okay. Because we're all evolving in our understanding of what's wrong with our culture. Nobody can fix it until we can see it. And so we're all, people of color and people who identify as white, all of us are trying to see it so that we can name it. And Ibram X. Kendi is naming it and telling us how he thinks we should be anti-racist. One of the other things he says, and I'm talking too long, I think, but one of the other things he says is to ask our children to imagine authority figures. Like, hey, kid, when you think of a doctor... What does that doctor look like? When you think of a teacher, what does that teacher look like? When you think of the president, what does the president look like? And a lot of times, our children are watching the media like we are, so it's important to let them see Shonda Rhimes shows where the heart surgeons are black, and movies where the president is black. And so that our children can imagine, because most of the time right now, they'll imagine the authority figures as white. And then you can talk about it. It doesn't make them bad. It doesn't make your children bad. It just means our children have been noticing that in the media, most authority figures are white. And sometimes you can just be watching TV with something and you can go, hey, look at that. There's a fat person in this show and the whole show's not about them being fat. They're just a character in the show. Look at that. There's a gay person and the whole thing's not about them being gay. 
Look at this show. Everybody's white on that show. Isn't that weird? Just start to notice and start to say is what he asks us to do. Also, when we're raising our children or when we're talking to one another, we need to challenge certain statements like, you go, everybody should be kind. Everybody should be treated the same. In America, we treat everybody the same. That is a lie. It's part of our American dream. We would love it if it were true. But it's not true. So when we say in America, we wish everybody be treated the same, but everybody's not treated the same. And then your children might want to know, well, why are some people not treated the same? Then you can have a conversation with your kids, age appropriate, as much as you think you should talk to them about what the challenges that people face. And so when you want to say anybody can do anything in America, you can be anything you want to, honey. Is that true? Just ask yourself, is this true? And let's not tell our children little lies. Let's not do the whole white supremacy thing of blurring their eyes so that they don't even see that not everybody's treated the same, not everybody's treated kindly, not everybody can do anything that they want to do. Also, it's important for all of us to realize that um, we need to attack policies as racist, not people. Our whole world is full of racist policies. There are some racist people, but you can fight racism as long as the policies aren't racist. So, why am I telling you this? Because we do want to be a welcoming congregation. We want to be a welcoming congregation for gay people. We want to be a welcoming congregation for brown, black, Asian, white transgender. Um, We want to be a a welcoming congregation for people who are marginalized and people who are not marginalized. But it means that some of us are going to have to be uncomfortable some of the time. And we don't want to put all that discomfort on the marginalized folks. We just want to be welcoming. And how do you be welcoming? You get smarter. You find yourself little bits of knowledge that help you. So that the first question we ask one another in the coffee hour is not, where did you go to college? Half of you used didn't go to college. We didn't know that. We would always say, half of you used have PhDs. Not true. And when we say to each other, we need more, we need more black and brown people in our congregations. It's like, really? Okay. We don't just want hues in the pews. If you go after a population of people to come to your church because of the color of their skin, that's kind of creepy. I was in the church when people wanted more gay people in the church. Like, we need more gay people in the church. Let's go get some gay people. Like, get away from me. The way you do that is by being welcoming. That's my current thought. That's our current thought. So we try to be welcoming. And we try, if we're a group of mostly white identified people, um, we try to work on 
the scales that are on our eyes so that we can be smart and kind and compassionate and not say stupid stuff to each other. Please say with me our words for extinguishing the chalice. We extinguish this flame, but not the light of truth, the warmth of community, or the fire of commitment. These we hold in our hearts until we are together again. Our president has an announcement. I'm Tony Wagner. I just want to give you a quick update. In the last two days, the board has met with the UUA program transition manager and Reverend Chris about what's next after Reverend Meg retires. We haven't had a chance to debrief and make a decision, which we need to do in the next week or two, but there are a couple of things I want to share that we're pretty confident about. First, between June 1st and August 1st, Chris will likely be the acting senior minister because if we are to get an interim minister, they wouldn't start until August 1st. So the immediate next step is Reverend Chris. Um, Second, there will definitely be a transition period, likely between one and two years. During this transition period, we will likely have two ministers, of which Chris would be one. The transition period will be a time to grieve the end of Meg's ministry, and also as a congregation to really think about what we want the next ministry for this church to be. We will want to get input from everyone to make sure that we're doing the the right thing. After the transition period, we'll have the option to consider Chris as an inside candidate to be a called minister or to do a full search. And just in full disclosure, Chris has expressed interest in being considered as an inside candidate. So there are still a lot of options, but those are the things that we know. Um, As soon as the board has more detail about what the transition period will look like, we will communicate what we know. And you should feel free to reach out to me or to any member of the board, which is on the website, uh, if you have any thoughts or questions. Thank you. Thank you, Tony. Please sing with me if you care to. I am open and I am willing for to be hopeless would seem so strange. It dishonors those who go before us. So lift us up to the light of change. Go in peace. This is a production of the First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin. For more information, go to our website at austinuu.org.